Hey everybody, welcome to People Are Wild, the podcast that claims to have medutainment, medical entertainment, every week, or weekish. My name is Kim, and I am your friendly neighborhood travel ER nurse of a host. I had to take a second to remember, how do I introduce myself? And this is part two of the Erickson Twins saga, I guess. Perhaps that's the best way of saying it. Just some housekeeping from the previous episode. I was told it was 500 Days of Summer. That's the name of the movie with Zoe Deschanel. And I don't have anything against Zoe Deschanel, okay? She's, she is what she is. But I just always found her odd in that commercial where they were trying to roll out Siri for Apple. And she's looking out a window asking Siri if it's raining. But you're looking out the window, Zoe. You can see the wet... I. <laughs> It's always frustrated me, and I guess on a weird level, I've just held it against Zoe Deschanel, even though she doesn't know who I am. Maybe that's why I'm always like, eh, she just exists. Anyways, 500 Days of Summer, but we are now in autumn, and again, is it fall or is it autumn? Is it a thoughtum? We don't know. But what is known is that this is part two from last week's episode. I stopped it midway because I noticed, basically going through my notes, that it would have morphed into something really, really longer than I actually anticipated when I made my notes. I figured if I split it up just a little bit better, it's easier just to kind of take it in chunks and also hopefully giving all of you the chance to perhaps see the documentary. But if you did see the documentary, you actually know about the later part. So... So maybe don't watch the documentary until you listen to this. I don't know. Do you live your life. YOLO, as the kids say. Or as my friend Angela always says, Yogmo, you only get murdered once. But that's not this type of podcast, right? I don't think so. Well, actually, maybe in this episode it is a little bit of a foreshadowing in a way. Also, my apologies again if there is some motorcycles that you hear. I'm still recording... The- the time I'm recording this episode, it's still at that same Airbnb that really, really loves PBR. Uh, that is also in South Dakota by Sturgis. And Sturgis is like a big deal in the motorcycle community. Sturgis Rally, I think every year has tens of thousands of motorcyclists attending it. And if you've ever been to a bike rally or a biker rally or biker get together, biker meetup, those are some of the coolest people ever. I mean, seriously. I have had the chance of working with some people who go to the rallies, but also seeing patients who get into motorcycle accidents at these rallies and other incidents, but they're really solid people. They love to ride. So I apologize if you do hear that. Again, I'm going to try and make sure that in editing that things don't sound as harsh with that background, but if you are a motorcyclist out there, please be safe. We have a saying in the ER especially that people who ride motorcycles are riding donor cycles, but that usually goes for, you know, the crotch rockets, the fast ones. So just be careful out there, wear your gear, ride safe, and if you are not a motorcyclist, definitely watch out for motorcyclists. Okay, so that's been your PSA about motorcyclists. Cue the more you know star just in the background. Let's go back into part two of the Ericsson twins. So... A brief-ish recap of what happened in the previous episode to this. So we have 
twin sisters, Sabina and Ursula Eriksson. They were born and raised in Sweden. They eventually went their separate ways with Sabina establishing herself and her family in Ireland and Ursula establishing herself in the United States. In the year 2008, they reconnected when Ursula flew from the US to see her sister in Ireland. It is kind of unknown what happened during that reunion, but what is known is that at some point the sisters went off without really leaving any plans for any family members or any contact points of where they were staying, and they went from Sabina's home in Ireland, boarded a ferry, and eventually arrived in Liverpool. So this turn of events, this happened during an overnight period. So in the morning when they actually docked in Liverpool, the two sisters ran into the nearest police station and had concerns about Sabina's family, their safety in Ireland and begged and pleaded for the Liverpool police officers to help them with establishing whether or not Sabina's family was okay. She felt like they were in danger. The officers took this very seriously. They contacted their Dublin counterparts who were able to establish contact with Sabina's family in Ireland and found that the family was safe. They were not harmed. They were not in any danger. And They relayed this back to the Liverpool PD, who wanted to tell the sisters, but when they went to go tell the sisters, the sisters had left the station and they had not given any sort of contact info for how to get in touch with them or any sort of information about where they were going. But it is known that the sisters walked to a bus station and boarded a chartered bus that was going to London. Again, they didn't necessarily know anybody in London. No one has ever come out and said that, oh, they had family here, they had friends here, they knew somebody here, they were going to go here to sightsee. Nobody knew what their plans or intentions were with going to London. But they boarded the bus and they displayed some strange and bizarre behavior where they would refuse to let the bus driver and any of the staff check their bags and their luggage that they had with them. In fact, they were clutching it to themselves, refusing to let anybody peek in there. And it also was mentioned in a few different articles that the twins would randomly stand up while the bus was in motion, and this concerned the bus driver as well. So the bus driver made the executive decision of making an unscheduled stop at a service station and allowing the twins to leave. It is also said, I believe in the documentary, that they were going to give them some sort of voucher so that they can get back on the bus. They didn't want to leave these two women stranded, it seemed like. But these women were displaying behaviors that were concerning to the service station manager, again, clutching at their bags, not letting really anybody look at them, being very mysterious, and walking towards the back of the service station, which concerned the manager enough that she eventually called law enforcement to come out and talk with these women. That is the bus driver angle. When police established contact with the Erickson sisters, they said that they had asked to be let off the bus because they felt sick, they felt ill, and they needed to get fresh air. Maybe it was a little bit of motion sickness. However, the interaction went between the sisters and law enforcement. Ultimately, the sisters didn't have any cause f- for concern for the law enforcement officials. They didn't take them into custody. They didn't think that they needed to do anything further with these sisters, so they let them go. Now we track the sisters' movements on a closed-circuit television footage that was pointed at the M6 highway, and it captures 
two women walking in the median of this busy highway that is going high speeds. This is the afternoon of May 17th. So there's a good deal of traffic flying by these sisters and the CCTV, the people watching it in these centers in the traffic control centers are concerned because it's both illegal, but also dangerous to have people just walking in this median. They can get hit. They could have all sorts of things happen that is concerning. And again, it's also illegal. So they make the executive decision to call upon law enforcement to respond to the scene and figure out what's going on. All these calls that are made to law enforcement also kind of coincide with the motorists that are seeing these women too. So they know that there's a situation going on and dispatch is like, we need to respond to it. People are concerned about what's going on. We're having numerous people calling in. So they dispatch their officers to the scene. And it just so happens that this particular set of officers that is dispatched also has a camera crew following them from a show called Motorway Cops, which is very much like the US version of Cops and Live PD, where it's a camera crew that is embedded and tagging along with certain officers and capturing footage of what's going on in their jobs. So basically everything is going to be captured on footage, on camera, and recorded. And so they tag along, they're riding out to the scene, and the next thing that happens is that the officers are able to get these sisters out of the median and talk to them in a safer area on the shoulder of the highway, so not really in harm's way, off to the side, and it's a pretty big shoulder. There are numerous officers that have responded. So there's a few cars that are there. So people are slowing down a little bit, but I mean, they're still going about with the traffic pattern, with the flow of traffic and with keeping with their speed. So they're talking to these sisters. They're trying to get a picture of what in the world is going on, what is happening. The sisters are cooperative. They are conversational. They're making sense for the most part. And then suddenly Ursula makes a mad dash into traffic, gets hit by a large truck going at a very high rate of speed. And then before anybody could really blink, her sister Sabina does the exact same thing and gets hit by a smaller car, but still going at a high speed. So this is all captured on camera. This is all recorded. And the officers are trying to get a handle on what's going on. They ask for an air ambulance to be sent. They are dealing with Sabina, who is unconscious. And they're also dealing with Ursula, who has obvious major broken bones in both of her legs. They said at one point there's a compound fracture. So that usually means it's a pretty obvious break going on. And there is, again, that concern of a head injury with Sabina. She is breathing, but she's not conscious. So they're going about what they're training training dictates, they're radioing for more medics, they're waiting for the air ambulance to come, considering that air evac, they're working on those logistics when suddenly Ursula, the one with the broken legs, is trying to fight against these officers and these medics who are there to help. And she's making statements about people not being real and how she needs help. And while she's making those statements, Sabina is slowly coming around. She's regaining consciousness. And even though she had just been hit by a car going at a very high rate of speed, she pops up, leaps onto her feet and eventually evades the officers who are trying to help with keeping her safe. And punches one in the face, hurdles over the median, and makes her way into that side of the oncoming traffic in a mad dash to apparently try and get hit 
by some sort of vehicle. And so everybody is slowing down on that side. Nobody hits her on that side, but the medics and the officers are trying to de-escalate this rapidly changing rapidly concerning situation on the M6, on this busy motorway. And eventually it takes the help and assistance of motorists getting out of their vehicles to restrain Sabina, bring her back over the other side where an ambulance is waiting. And in the ambulance, the medics make the decision that Sabina is being combative. She was kicking at people. She was saying statements much like Ursula did about people not being real, asking for the police to be called, even though the police kept reassuring her, we are here. We're here to help you. And she made those statements as well as something else about people stealing her organs. It was a chaotic scene. And the medics knew that in order to properly assess a person who might be experiencing a medical emergency, a severe head injury, they had to sedate her so that they could transport her rapidly to the hospital. In Ursula's case, the the helicopter did arrive and she was air evacuated to the nearest hospital in order to get emergency surgery done. But in Sabina's case, she is medically cleared. She doesn't have any sort of lasting injuries. And as far as anybody can tell or any record can show, she didn't have any sort of mental health evaluation done in the hospital. Nothing is recorded as having had any sort of behavioral health or psychological screening done. And she's medically cleared, she is discharged, but she's discharged to police custody, where she is charged with the assault on that officer, as well as walking in the median, which was illegal. And she is being processed in the jail, and this footage is also captured uh, by a camera crew, and she is cooperative with the officials, she is a little bit flirtatious at times, she is making sense for the most part, but... She never once asked about her sister. Now, very soon thereafter, after being taken into custody, she is seen by the judge who does sentence her to one day in jail. However, because she had already spent a night, a full day, and part of that evening in the jail, she is released as having had credited with time served. So that's kind of where we pick up with part two. Now, at some point, she is apparently notified or she at least knows that her sister was taken to a hospital. And now that she's out of jail, she's done her time, she's owned up to the crime, she's all alone in an unknown city, doesn't know a soul where she's at, and she has no friends that she can call. And even though she knows that her sister is in a hospital, she doesn't know which one. Plus, this is 2008. And smartphones were just getting on the scene. They were just being rolled out. And we certainly didn't have sort of those capabilities to just do a GPS tracker without having three different devices and waiting 16 years for a dial-up to connect. No, not really. 2008 wasn't that archaic. But I do remember dial-up. Those were the days. But it was in the infancy of having our personal little computers in our phones. So in 2008, it would have been harder for her to really take her phone out and pinpoint where she was. In fact, I'm sure that if she had her phone, which by the way, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the first episode, but when police were cleaning up some of the accident scene on the M6, they noticed that there were multiple broken cell phones that scattered about 
on the M6 that must have belonged to the twins. And it is noted, but there's never really been any follow-up or really any sort of reason or explanation as to why they had so many phones and if they were already broken or if they got broken in transport from Ireland to where they ended up. It's one of those questions that this case just keeps bringing up. There's so many questions in this case. And I don't even think by the end of this, I'm going to really definitively give any answers. All I can do is just present the facts and, and the things that I've been able to research and find through different sources. But a lot of the explanations that maybe I'll be able to give from a medical professional point of view is all speculation. It's all speculation. And this whole entire case is just a mind F. Like I said, if you go on Reddit and you go on their unsolved mysteries subreddit and you find the Erickson twins, it's you will lose hours, you'll lose days, you'll look up at the clock and be like, what just happened? I went down a hole. I don't know what happened. Where am I? What year is it? Seriously, it will take it'll take you in. It'll hold you there. And you're going to come out and you'll be like, I still don't understand anything. So going back, though, to Sabina, we are in 2008. She does not have a smartphone. She can't really look up the nearest hospitals towards giving her clarity about where her sister might be. But I started thinking about this and part of me was like, well, why didn't she just ask at the, the jail? Why didn't she ask any of the officers or any of the officials and see if somebody might help her with locating her sister? And then I realized I've really never been in jail. I don't, why do I say that with such hesitancy? Like I've never really been in jail. That's like a, a yes or a no thing. It's not like you could be like, I don't think I'm really pregnant. I don't think I've ever been in jail. Like I've never been in jail. The closest I got was I had to pay a fine for a speeding ticket at a sheriff's office. So it's the closest I've ever gotten, but I've never been to jail. I've only seen it on UPN. I'm sorry, that's, that's taking myself back. But they used to have that series jail and it followed cops. And there was the one episode where they actually had arrested OJ Simpson and they captured the footage of him being processed into the Las Vegas jail before he was seen by the judge. It was amazing. It's amazing television because that's, uh, that is just, it's creepy footage. And, and you just look at it and you're like, why does he act this way? And I really shouldn't say anything because now he has a Twitter and he's like going after the haters and the trolls. Like he's Jody Arias or something, whatever. Two peas in a pod. Anyways, why didn't she say something to the officers and just say, hey, do you think you could help me with finding which hospital my sister's at? And I realized something that I'm going to assume that based upon some of the reality shows I've seen about jail, it's a pretty happening place. There's a lot of things that are going on. And if she was being released from jail and she was being processed out, it's probably pretty routine for people. They have to sign things. They get their belongings back. There's more forms I'm sure they have to sign or something to that effect. And then that's it. So I don't know if maybe Sabina didn't know when to ask or who to ask. She might have genuinely just not known. Or I also thought about it in this way, that there are certain people in the world that are the Carols and Karens of the world who march right up to that customer service counter and demand to speak to people. And then there's like the timid Tinas of the world who see that there's something going on, that people are busy, and that even though staff is there to help people, they don't want to inconvenience them. And they would rather just leave the situation and figure out their own way. I don't know if maybe that's what was going on as well, or to a degree, 
that's what Sabina was looking at because I feel like if she had been able to ask somebody, one of the officials, one of the officers to help her with figuring out what hospital her sister was at, we might not even really have the rest of this episode. Things that happened afterwards might not have happened. And you can never say for certain that somebody wouldn't have had a series of events happen to them because you can't predict life, even though Miss Cleo tries to. Oh, rest in peace, Miss Cleo. But I think it is safe to say that there definitely could have been a different outcome if maybe she, Sabina, knew a little bit more about what resources she can use, who she can ask in order to figure out where her sister was at. But she didn't, and she didn't know these resources. So what ended up happening was that she was released from jail. She didn't know which hospital Ursula was at. She was given her belongings back, which included her own clothing, Ursula's green top, which Sabina actually was wearing upon her release from jail, a laptop, 1,000 pounds in cash, And she stored all of this in a clear plastic bag that the police station had actually provided to her. So like I said, when they were doing some of the cleanup from the accidents on the M6, things were just thrown about. And if you think about it, these two women were hit high speeds, full force. And it doesn't necessarily surprise me that any and all belongings that they had between the two of them got lost somewhere, got misplaced. It was never really noted whether or not they traveled with X amount of bags before they got on the bus or when they boarded the ferry, because again, nobody has ever come forward from the ferry. And the only person from the bus who has really come forward has been the bus driver. And then that service station manager who saw some of this erratic and unusual behavior. But really, nobody can say for certain whether or not Maybe they got on the ferry with like four bags to to a piece and then they left those there and then they just decided to walk and carry with them whatever they could carry. I mean, it's like the clothes on your back sort of thing, like whatever you can put into your pack, whatever you can put into your purse, that's what we're using. Forget the rest of our bags. That's not safe right now. They'll track us with that. I don't know what they were thinking. But if they're coming in with frenzied states into that Liverpool police station uh, and they previously might have had some sort of baggage on the ferry, maybe they did. Maybe they left it. Maybe that's part of the story and nobody's ever looked at that because, again, nobody's ever come forward from the ferry. So maybe... There is some things that we don't know. Maybe there's items that got left behind. Who knows? What is known is that Sabina now finds herself carrying all these items, carrying all this cash in a clear plastic bag. And so she is in this vulnerable state and she's wandering around in this unknown place, unknown town, trying to get her bearings, trying to figure out how to get to Ursula. So she happens to run into a couple of guys who are out at night walking a dog. And from that point on, It was basically the countdown towards a tragedy. So Glenn Hollinshead was a former Royal Air Force airman, a self-employed welder, and a qualified paramedic. He had quite the knowledge base for his 54 years of life. With him on that night was his friend Peter Malloy. And they both could tell from their initial meeting with Sabina that she was in a bit of a panic. She was in a nervous state of mind. She was anxious. 
But she was keeping conversation with them as she petted the dog a bit. And the men learned that Sabina was trying to find a place to stay for the night. She was asking about any local hotels or motels or rooms that could rent to her for a cheap price or any B&Bs nearby so that she can get some rest and figure out where her sister was. Now, Glenn felt bad for this woman right from the jump. Glenn had a natural inclination to look out for people to help people out, especially if they were in a bit of a bind. And so he offered his own home for the night, which immediately seemed to put Sabina at ease. And she explained that she had been trying to figure out which hospital her sister was located in. But Peter was a little bit apprehensive and concerned about Sabina's behavior. But Glenn, well, he was different. He was a father of two. And so in his eyes, he was looking at Sabina as a woman who needed safety and maybe a hot meal and a nice cup of tea and a little bit of rest before she could figure out what was going on and how to get to her sister. So this trio decided to return to Glenn's home. Cups of tea were made, and Sabina actually offered the men some cigarettes as they made general small talk. However, Sabina would often peer out the windows before returning to the conversation, which heightened Peter's spidey senses. I couldn't help myself. Peter suspected that maybe she was looking out these windows so much because she was in fear of somebody she knew might be following her or tracking her. And Sabina was displaying more strange behavior. Whenever she offered the men cigarettes, she quickly grabbed the cigarettes from the men before they could even light up and said that they could be poisoned before ditching them. But for the most part, Peter just decided this woman was a little bit off, but seemed kind of harmless. And he also noticed that it was almost midnight. And so he decided to take his leave from Glenn's house, leaving Glenn to deal with this strange, but again, harmless woman for the night. Now, the next day, Glenn called his brother in an attempt to see if he might be able to help with locating Ursula for Sabina. And by the evening, Glenn had been preparing a meal for them, having spent most of the day trying without really any success, to get a location regarding Ursula's whereabouts. Glenn excused himself to borrow some tea bags from his neighbor. He then returned to his home, but not even a minute later, he suddenly staggers outside towards that same neighbor. He's bleeding profusely. And he states to this neighbor, she stabbed me. And then, depending on what you read, he allegedly asked this neighbor to look after his dog for him before Glenn collapses onto the ground and shortly dies from his wounds. See, he had been stabbed five times with a butcher knife by Sabina. The neighbor immediately calls for police as Sabina flees from Glenn's home, but not before she had grabbed a hammer. And she is actually seen briefly on CCTV running. A motorist saw her running and saw her periodically hitting herself in the head with that hammer. So he stops because he's like, what the heck is going on? And he gets out of his vehicle in an attempt to disarm her, get the hammer away from her, try and figure out what is going on with this lady. And as he is trying to get this hammer away from her, Sabina decides to hit him over the head with a roof tile that she had stashed away in her pocket. Now I'd say that's probably a bit of a step above Dale Gribble's pocket sand, but I don't really know the tiers of pocket-based distractions and disarming techniques. But I do know that the blow to this man's head stunned him. 
And Sabina was able to make a break for it and was able to run away from this man. But due to the fact that they did get into this skirmish of sorts, she had been located by medics who had responded initially to the neighbor's phone call at Glenn's house. And they saw her and pursued her. So she made it to this bridge. And for whatever reason, perhaps she felt like she was being threatened or she had some sort of fight or flight response, she decides the best way to get out of this situation was to jump from the bridge 40 feet above the A50. So yes, she decides to jump onto another freeway. She just likes the asphalt. I don't know. Again, she survives what is seemingly a fatal mechanism of injury. Speaking of injuries... This time, Sabina would require a bit of hospitalization. She had sustained a skull fracture and had broken both of her ankles. So she was taken immediately to the hospital. And it wasn't until about a month later, while she was still recovering in the hospital, that she was actually placed under arrest. And it would be months later before she was medically discharged and cleared. So on September 11th, 2008, she was formally charged with murder. Now, in that same month of September of that same year, her sister Ursula was discharged from the hospital and never faced charges in relation to the M6 incident. She eventually went back to Sweden, where I guess we could assume that she probably was cared for by the people who knew her best, her friends and family, and she would eventually relocate back to the United States. And the latest that anyone can find on her regarding her current whereabouts Ursula Erickson seems to be living a pretty quiet life in the state of Washington. And that's really all anyone knows about her. But as for Sabina, a delay in getting medical records from Sweden pushed her trial back to September of 2009. So almost a full year after she had been actually charged with the murder of Glenn Hollinshead. So she pled guilty to manslaughter with diminished responsibility with both the defense and prosecution in agreement that Sabina was insane at the time of the killing of Glenn Hollinshead. When asked during the trial to explain her actions, she did not. And during police questioning, her only answer was no comment. Her defense claimed that she suffered from folie à deux, and that is the best French pronunciation you will ever hear. No, probably not, but... I tried. This is a rare psychological condition wherein the sufferers share in a delusion. And in Sabina's case, Ursula was the primary sufferer, while Sabina was the secondary sufferer, having been influenced by the presence of Ursula as with what had happened on the M6 on that May 17th, 2008, or the perceived presence of Ursula being with Sabina as what had happened a few days later at Glenn Hollenhead's residence. In 2010, Sabina was sentenced to serve five years at the women's prison, but with credit for jail time served in custody, as well as what I would imagine to be good behavior from Sabina during her prison time, after all, she reportedly turned her life to Jesus and became a follower of Christianity, her earliest chance at parole was in 2011. And as such, she was released in 2011. Now, while some have speculated that she might have returned to Sweden to see family, to live amongst her friends, or at least somewhere in the Scandinavian region of the world, 
Her true exact whereabouts since 2011 are unknown. So now we have to talk about how did this happen? Well, maybe that's a poor choice of words. Let's just talk about some of the theories that the sweet, sweet land of Reddit and its internet accomplices likes to throw around regarding this case. Al Gore lived so Reddit can fly. I'm going to present these theories from the most mm, implausible, now we'll just say ridiculous, to the more probable. So let's get into it. The first theory is that Sabina and Ursula Erickson are alien-human hybrids. That's a real theory that some people believe to be true. Now, they cite that the twins seem to survive things that most people would die from. Ursula did get hit at a high speed by a heavy truck and was conscious while just breaking both of her legs and going on to make a full recovery. And Sabina also was hit by a vehicle going a high rate of speed before regaining consciousness, fighting off people, and then sprinting away, bounding over the median to try and run away into oncoming traffic on the other side. She then goes on to survive a 40-foot jump from a bridge onto asphalt. So how can a person survive all that? Well, this is when you have to cue that whole History Channel, Ancient Aliens... Giorgio, and just be like, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it might be an alien-human sort of hybrid thing going on. But come on, it's probably not aliens. And I mean, I did wait until after the raid on Area 51 to record this episode, just in case. Just in case. I mean, it's not aliens, right? Right? And don't try to come in here and at me about how it's probably reptilians as they walk among us. Listen, I know about that TV show V, and I don't think it's based on true events. I watched too many episodes of Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura. I have watched the reptilian episode, I won't say how many times. And I'm as woke as woke can be, and I still don't believe that reptilians walk among us And I don't believe that an alien-human hybrid set of Swedish twins ran away and killed people. I, You can't even flesh out that theory beyond the fact that maybe they have superhuman strength and endurance and stamina and resiliency. But no, they're not aliens. While I do believe that there are other forms of life out there, I don't believe for a second that an alien-human hybrid set of twins is responsible for what happened. Now, in the next theory, this one still has a little dash of conspiracy theory to it. If you squint, you'll see it, because some people claim that the twins were involved in the MKUltra slash Manchurian candidate slash government mind control slash men who stare at goats experiment. Like, on almost Every sci-fi show there is, with Fringe standing out as the most recent, they love to say that the government does secret experimentation on children or on twins and that they're training them to be these sleeper agents. When the moment arises, they'll snap out of it or a trigger phrase will happen and they'll go into like Zoolander mode and want to kill the prime rib of Micronesia or something. But come on, even if you do believe this, 
why would the twins throw themselves into traffic? What kind of trigger thing is that for them to become these sleeper agents? And then why would they need the sleeper agents? What would be their mission? What are we getting out of this? Why did Glenn Holland's head have to meet a tragic end? It doesn't make sense. Like there's this, mm -mm, this theory goes nowhere. As the kids say, it's weak. So now we can slide into some actual more plausible theories of why this happened. So some people think that the twins actually had a suicide pack. Now going back to some of the earlier rambling I did last week about the twin studies and how we find twins fascinating, sometimes it seems like they might actually have like a telepathic-like connection, doing things without even having to say it or just doing things in tandem without any thought to it. So what if the twins had agreed to run into traffic in some sort of suicide pact? While it might explain their actions on the M6, it's still a little bit confusing when applied to the actions that happened afterwards. Sabina's actions in particular. But then again, maybe you could say that the bridge jump was her way of saying it's all or nothing, and maybe she jumped in an attempt to uphold their pact. Now, I did, I believe, mention last episode there's an author, David McCann, who did write the book about these twins called A Madness Shared by Two. In his book, he lays out that the twins might have been caught up in a drug trafficking plot. This is based off of Sabina's partner in Ireland allegedly having ties to a drug trafficking ring of sorts. And authorities in the UK were made aware of the sisters' movements and were going to keep surveillance on them in hopes of discovering more about the drug ring. Now, in order to do that, they would have to make sure to keep the sisters out of legal trouble as much as possible so as not to lose a potential lead. Could the sisters themselves have been smuggling in drugs and that's why they didn't want anyone to check their bags or their belongings? Is that also why they had multiple cell phones that were later found broken amongst their personal belongings? It doesn't explain everything as much as the generally accepted theory does, but it does explain things here and there. Definitely checks boxes, but only like a few. The one that is the generally accepted theory as to why this happened is that folie adieu, which is that French term that I hope I'm saying right. Translated, it means a madness of two or a shared madness. In the documentary, they talk about how it's a puff of madness. And this is what the defense based everything off of. Now, this extremely rare condition that can happen between two people who are close oftentimes does happen between family members. And they both experienced this same delusion. Now, the twins both made statements at the M6 about the police and the medics not being real. Sabina actively screamed for the police as the police themselves were trying to keep her safe. And remember, they had that whole fixation about how people were going to steal their organs. And even going back before then, upon their arrival to Liverpool, they dashed into this police station and they had all these concerns about Sabina's family being in danger. So this shared madness being able to 
to happen between the twins, especially, but also having that sort of delusion carry on with Sabina, even when Ursula was in the hospital, while it might be a little bit harder to accept, it's probably the most plausible explanation. But it's still super confusing and still leaves a ton of unanswered questions. And while we might not ever know really truly definitively why this happened, Glenn Holland's head died at the hands of Sabina Erickson. And that's really where my heart really breaks for is Glenn's family. One of the Law enforcement officials who worked the case, Detective Superintendent Dave Garrett, stated that, quote, The reasons for the two events may never be truly known or understood, but the taking of Glenn's life was a violent and senseless act, end quote. Now, Glenn's brother, Gary, was asked about the sentence and the trial as a whole, and he would go on to say, quote, We don't hold her responsible, the same as we wouldn't blame a rabid dog for biting someone. She is ill, and to a large degree, not responsible for her actions. But her mental disorder should have been recognized much earlier. I do question the criminal justice system for allowing somebody like this to be let out when she is capable of committing such a crime. Her mental condition should have been properly assessed after what she did on the motorway and the experiences that the police had. Her mental disorder should have been picked up prior to her being let out into the community. Glenn saw Erickson in distress and was just trying to help. He wasn't slow in coming forward to help somebody in distress. It was in his nature. He was trying to help. He would help anybody. If he saw a fight in the street and a guy was losing, he would help, end quote. So while this is a tragedy on many levels, that diagnosis of a folia du is something unique rare, extremely rare. But what if this madness of two trickled down a family line and became a madness of five? See, what I didn't tell you at all before any of this was that this topic has another part to it. And while we close the book on the Erickson side of things, there is a little bit more behind this puff of madness. And I promise you won't have to wait months for it to come out. But until then, believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, and be kind to yourself this week.